Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and advice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. Today, we're answering questions about the sometimes blurry differences between creative inspiration and plagiarism. So can you humans have truly original thoughts? If you borrow from your own work, is that considered plagiarism? And one caller asks us, where's the line between repurposing and building off of other people's work versus getting creative credit you don't deserve? For instance, when using music samples in hip hop. All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Gina from Mexico City. So I wonder if human brains are capable of original thought or if we can only think in terms of permutations of things we've actually experienced. My question is, would you agree with this? What would an original thought actually look like? Would it even resonate with people? Or would it be so far out of our experience that it has nowhere to enter in our minds? Oh, <laughs> all right. I, I love this. It's getting real existential with this topic uh, right away. I uh, When I hear this question, I immediately think of Mark Twain, actually, because Mark Twain in the 1800s kind of made this argument that there's no such thing as an original thought, that everything is uh, is copying something because mankind's been around for so long. He kind of made this argument that, that everything's been thought of. But I think this is really interesting to think about in terms of creativity being, you know, when you combine things to make something rather than just making something out of thin air. But uh, before I, I get on too much of a monologue, Alan, what's your take on this? Well, creativity is so interesting because I think we misunderstand what it fundamentally is. I think we talked about this in another episode, but a lot of times we, I think, confuse it with productivity. And creativity is really about creating something that's both new and recognized as having value. Mm -hmm. And that recognition makes it inherently a social phenomenon. So I'm a big subscriber to the systems theory of creativity, which is this conceptualization of creativity in sociology, which says that you know creativity exists within a system, right? So think about a radical art movement. Think about someone like a Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock exists in reaction to something that came before, even if it's radically different. It's not truly original because of the influences which led him there. In fact, Jackson Pollock is perhaps a bad example because his drip technique was really this, you know, is basically inspired by the Navajo, um, which did this sort of drip sand art technique, which is kind of interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, I have full fun facts today. And so fundamentally, when we think of original thought, if there was true original thought, I think it would be incomprehensible to even look at because we would have no idea how to categorize it or think about it or how to even process it. So everything's in context is basically what you're saying. We have to have raw material to work from to even understand what each other are saying in order to make something. We're using raw materials, which itself are not coming from nothing. Uh, but this this second part of her question, would we even recognize originality if we saw it in the face? I, I want to take it a little bit in a different direction of how do we recognize when something is original, not in this philosophical existential way, but when something truly is original from a creativity standpoint, you might be using building blocks and knowledge and building standing on the shoulders of giants, but what makes something 
an original piece of art or a work of creativity. So we actually know a lot about this, which is kind of cool. And academics look at this concept of the impact of familiarity when it comes to creativity. And what you find is that the ideas, this is something we've talked about a lot, talk about in my book, the ideas that tend to take hold are ideas that have one foot in the familiar and one foot in the novel. They have something that harkens back to something we're comfortable with that feels safe, but adds some sort of novel twist, some novel perspective, some novel framework, some novel, maybe just container, right? Think about a Tide pen. And so it's when you have those intersections that we deem something typically as creative and interesting. If something was actually radically novel, we probably wouldn't think it's that creative. We'd probably just think, oh, this is kind of weird or annoying. But when we look at the things, like I always use the example of, think about the iPad. The mm-hmm. iPad was an iPhone without a phone. Yep. The iPhone was an iPod with a phone. The iPod was an incrementally better MP3 player. And so what you have is you have as sort of a group of people, we tend to like things that take sort of small steps in originality, small steps into the novel. And, you know, in terms of this specific question, you know, this is sort of recognized typically by, you know, sort of think about it as like the gatekeepers, although what a gatekeeper is, is changing right now. But usually there's a group of people within any sort of creative context that sort of decides this is creative. And usually the framework in which that decision is made is this sort of familiarity novelty continuum. I really like that. So we wrote about this in our book about storytelling, the storytelling edge, where if you want to get someone on board with a story in the beginning, you need to make them care about the characters. You need to make them care about the situation in some way. That's where relatability comes in. But if you just tell the same story that people have already heard, they're going to not enjoy it. They're not going to remember it. You need a twist. You need a surprise. You need to introduce something unexpected in order to keep them hooked in that story. It can't just be all the familiarity. It has to be a combination of, of both of those things. I love that. So uh, Gene, to answer your question, originality is probably incomprehensible if we were to see it. So paradoxically, is it a paradox? Is it a paradox? I'm not sure. But um, we probably it's an unanswerable question because we wouldn't know it if we saw it. So how could we recognize it? Thanks, Gina. <laughs> and now it's time to segue into our trivia for this episode. I'm calling this trivia ripoff edition. All right, Alan, I've got an easy one for you. Who is it that said this famous quote? The definition of insanity is saying the same thing over and over again and expecting things to change. So there was a poster in my third grade class with this quote. And I think I know the answer, but sometimes these types of quotes have been misattributed. And so this might be a trick. Like sometimes you like to trick me. So I I feel a little uncomfortable with how clear headed I am with this answer. So I'm going to say it, but if I'm wrong, it's your fault. Like you've tricked me. I've already hedged. Yeah, I was well-intended. It's Albert Einstein. Wrong, but you were also right about the misattribution. (laughs) So I like this question on the subject of plagiarism and originality because saying the same thing over and over again, is that insane uh, if we expect things to change? But also you did guess right that people think Albert Einstein was the one who said this. There was literally a poster in my third grade class. like, Like I was lied to. Yeah, you were. Everyone thinks this was Einstein, but there's actually no record of Einstein ever saying this. 
As far as my research took me, this actually came from an Alcoholics Anonymous pamphlet from around 1981, which I think is even more appropriate if you're trying to get over substance problems. Uh, doing the same thing is not going to change things. But some people also attribute it to a mystery novelist in 1983, but it definitely wasn't Einstein. Did you know, Alan, that actually 76% of famous quotes are actually misattributed to more famous people than who actually said them? Is that and made up? Where'd that, that stat come from? That stat's made up too. Oh, oh my uh, God. This is, this is <laughs> you're a trickster today. But the, the point here is this, is that a quote carries more weight if you pretend or if you think that it was said by someone loftier. So if I say the same thing was said by Gandhi, but actually it was said by Charles Manson, you're going to think very differently of it. <laughs> and so I like this for the trivia for this uh this episode, because we're talking about originality, plagiarism, creativity, and there is this thing that happens where the more famous you are, the more gravitas you have, the more credit you tend to get. And that's why Einstein gets credit for this quote that is actually not his. Hmm. Look at the things I learned today. My third grade teacher tricked me. I'm just kidding. We love you. Like, you were great. Okay. Um, we are going to go to our next question and let's hit the phone line. Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Kara. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, as a writer of business blogs, I frequently get asked to do the same or similar topics uh, over and over again. How does plagiarism work when you're um, borrowing from your own work on the internet? Um, am I allowed to kind of create very similar pieces with different words? Um, do I need to come up with something totally new? Should I link to the old piece? Um, how does that work? Wow. So, you know, Shane and I are both writers and I'll speak for myself, which I think plagiarism is like terrifying. I am, yeah. especially because I think there's obviously a lot of cases of very intentional plagiarism. But there's also an ability to accidentally plagiarize. You know, your, your brains are sort of processing information. They're constantly taking things in and they sort of recombobulate and formulate ideas into new ideas. And it can be confusing to know where ideas come from. So, I mean, I, I, you know, for myself, I know when I'm working on a project, one thing I try and do is I try and read a lot of primary sources and avoid sort of other people's synthesis. Yes. Because I want to come up with my own connections. But, you know, specifically around self-plagiarism, I mean, this is a topic that we've seen in the last 10 years has come up with a lot of writers. Oh, yeah. I actually have a, a dear friend who had a big scandal in self-plagiarism that I think was not deserved, but people were very eager to, uh, to pounce on and point out. I think the self-plagiarism thing is really interesting because if you think about artists in different fields, there's artists that draw variations of the same thing over and over and over again and sell and that Warhol. same painting. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, uh, Coons, right? With the, the little the balloon animal thing. Yeah. yeah. Sells <laughs> the same ones over and over again. You see filmmakers put the same elements and Easter eggs in their movies over and over again. Bruce Willis says, yippee Kaye, motherfucker, in every <laughs> Die Hard movie, like six times. That's not an original line. So I think there is an element of hypocrisy to the self-plagiarism thing in writing. We jump on it in writing. We don't jump on it when someone gives the same public speech over and over again. I think when I process this question, I think about the cardinal rule of journalism, which is don't betray the audience. Don't betray the reader. And so if you're a writer or if you're an artist of some sort, 
if you know that the audience knows what you're doing, that you're saying you're doing a callback, you're doing your thing, and they don't feel betrayed by it, great. I think with Kara's question, she's talking a little bit about the client thing. You have a client that's paying you for something. If mm. you write the same thing that you wrote another client, is it ethical to get paid for that thing? I think it's not if you don't mm. tell the client. If the client feels betrayed, if they were to find out, then that's where the breach of ethics is. If the client says, yeah, you know, I'm hiring you because you write about this thing, go for it, write, you know, similar stuff. Yeah, that's what I want. Or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like that's your thing. That's great. But then you have the thing with the audience is make sure that the audience, when they show up, that they're clear on this too. Easy way to do it is say, as I've said before, and link to your other article, that's great mm -hmm. for your search engine optimization anyway. <laughs> but I, I think that's the big thing with self-plagiarism is don't, if anyone walks away feeling like they were tricked by you, that's the problem. I also think there's an element of the nuance between thoughts and words, arguments mm. and words. So a lot of times these self-plagiarism issues came out because these writers were reusing the same exact sentences. Mm -hmm. And as writers, as people who trade in ideas and arguments, inherently when we make an argument or we take up an idea, we're going to argue it multiple times. And so I think using the same ideas is not only not self-plagiarism, but it's sort of the point of yes. a lot of writing. Because you're trying to convince people over time of an issue. On the other side, I think if you're using the same exact words, I think that's self-plagiarism. That's where you need quote marks. That's where you should attribute to yourself and you know quote you know link back. You know get that SEO juice. Make link sure back. people know it's your tagline or your catchphrase. You know we know it's Bruce Willis's catchphrase. That's exactly exactly. And the other thing is you know also even when you're reusing ideas. I think it's often important to, if you have some base piece of content that those ideas are sort of emanating from. So for example, with a book, you know, when you are doing the book promotion process, a lot of times you excerpt and you adapt pieces of the book for publication. Sort of one of the things you do in book marketing. And you'll see it always says adapted from. And so yeah. even though it's the same ideas, in that case, a lot of times you're using some similar sentences, you're changing stuff a little bit, you're maybe using the exact same arguments. In that case, you sort of use that adapted by tag. And so I think there's a lot of ways to avoid falling into the self-plagiarism trap, but I love this idea of don't betray your audience, don't betray your client. Yeah. So uh, we are going to go into our next segment which is a little game that I like to call, we like to call, it is called Gramondo. So, okay, this is a game and this is a stressful game. Um, you know, we've been talking today about places where the rules are fuzzy, but there's one place where rules are less fuzzy, right? Right? Grammar. Grammar. Those are where rules are less fuzzy. Well, actually, okay, there's actually lots of very fuzzy places in grammar. And so we're going to play a game where I ask Shane three incredibly difficult grammar questions and see if he can be crowned the Gramondo, which according to Urban Dictionary is slang for one who is particularly particular about the accuracy of grammar, punctuation, and syntax. Shane, author man, are you ready? Let's do this. Okay. So we are going to start with an easy one. What is the difference between IE and EG. Oh, EG is, for example, IE is in other words. I don't know the Latin for it, but I believe that that's the right way to do it. 
So I have good news and I have good news. You are correct. Wow, you did great. EG is example given. IE is adding more specificity. The cheers are still going. I don't know how to stop them. And um, okay, okay, okay. Let's let's ratchet this up. This one I think is harder. I think it's harder. We'll is the word that. none singular or plural? Well, I believe it's nuns if you have multiple nuns. So no, 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 not the not the nuns like not like um, the church nuns like, like N O N E. Oh. Oh, <laughs> I totally thought you were talking about uh, nuns. Okay. Um, none. Is none singular or plural? None of the above. I believe it's singular. I believe it's used singularly. If the verb following it uh, follows the rules of singularity. Yeah, that, that would be my answer. Well, okay. I think you're wrong, but I kind of just wanted to say you're wrong. So you sort of said at the end the right thing, which is that it depends on what it's modifying. So it's not always singular because it could be modifying a singular object. So like none of the cake was eaten, then it's Mm. singular, but it could also be modifying a plural and then it'd be plural. For example, none of the cakes tickled his fancy. Ah, none of the nuns ate cake. None of the nuns ate none of the cake. No. Okay. Let's keep going. Okay. So... It's time to extract some tears. This is the third and final question. This is a best two out of three situation. So if you win this, you can still be crowned the Gramando. Gramando, right. Gramando. When do you use the word lie, L-I-E, versus the word lay, L-A-Y, when in reference to something being in a horizontal position? Oh, okay. So like, I'm going to go lay down versus I'm going to go lie down. I'm not giving you hints. I, you know, I think because of the nun thing, I'm thinking of that now I lay me down to sleep. I think if you (laughs) are putting yourself horizontal, you are laying. If you are putting someone else horizontal, you are lying them. Hmm. I'm also thinking about the idea of getting laid because that someone else is laying you. Uh, uh, I mean, that's my best guess. That's the best I can do. It's who's doing the laying to whom or what. Hmm. I can't tell whether to buzz you or cheer you. So I'm going to give you both because you're, you're, you're kind of right, but you're kind of wrong. Grammar's hard. The lines are fuzzy. So I can barely understand it. So I'm going to quote Miriam Webster. So here's what Miriam Webster says. Lay is transitive. It requires that the verb have an object. There has to be a thing or person being placed. Lay it down. Lie, on the other hand, is intransitive. It is for something or someone moving on their own or something that's already in position. You can lie down there. You can lie there all day. And by the way, perhaps more confusingly, Uh, the past tense of lie in this context is lay, while the past tense of lay is laid. Oh, no. I think I get it. So if there's an object, there's something that's doing the laying, that's being laid, that's lay. If it's just the thing itself is going horizontal, then that's lie. Yes, unless it's past tense. And then it gets even worse. Lay. Well, okay. All right. I, you know, 
I, well, let's focus on the uh, IE versus EG part of this whole thing. You, you did great uh, there. You did great there. You're Germando light. We are we are going to go on to our next question now that Shane has officially lost. I mean, done decent. All right, ready? Let's hit let's hit the answering machine. Hey, Alan and Shane, um, this is Mick. Quick question for you. Um, as you're talking about plagiarism and creativity, what are your thoughts on sampling like within hip hop culture? I mean, I'm a DJ, so like for me, sampling was how I learned about um, so much previously existing creative material that I never knew about what it was. And I, and I learned it all simply through people repurposing things, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally, but always creatively. And so as we're talking about that, you know, that fine line, what are your thoughts on on, on how that kind of uh, went down and also like birthed probably the most creative subculture of all time? I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Thanks, guys. All right. I love this question. I mean, I, I wrote about the birth of hip hop in Dream Teams and how it hip-hop is just this laboratory for innovation. And so I'll take the first stab at this question. I think that if you are talking about creativity in terms of taking building blocks and putting them together in different ways so that you can come up with something that uh, you know that people love, hip-hop is such a good example because it got really creative with those building blocks. You know, And the sampling thing, for anyone who doesn't know the music terms, it's basically taking a clip of someone else's song and playing it in your song. So there's that Kanye West song, uh, stronger, where it's cuter, faster, bigger, stronger, <laughs> that thing. Uh, he took a Daft Punk song. Yeah, I'm doing Robot Arms for, you know. It's great, yes. I can't see for it. our listeners out there. <laughs> uh, he took a Daft Punk song that had this great, a great clip from it, and then he puts that underneath his whole song, and then he raps over it. And it's such a brilliant song, but that was, Kanye West was one of the best at this thing of identifying the best little snippets of other people's music and turning whole songs out of them. And, uh, but this is how hip hop in general was, was created is it was assembled from building off of other people's work. And so I think that is a phenomenal way to come up with new stuff, phenomenal way to, to amaze audiences, give them entertainment and, and stuff that they love. I think the thing that is tough is the there's sort of the legal boundary of what's fair to do. But then there's also, I think, an ethical, moral boundary that has to do with this thing we were talking about earlier about betraying the audience or really betraying the other creative person. If I make something that's great and someone takes a piece of that and makes a ton of money off of it or makes something even better and doesn't give me credit, then I'm going to be upset. I actually think that this this makes me think of the idea of appropriation. We talk about cultural appropriation a lot in our society, uh, but appropriation in general, I, I think the best definition that anyone ever gave me of appropriation is when you make money off of someone else's cherished thing and they don't. Mm. And so if I love someone that. put... I mean, I yeah. don't love it, but I love the definition. Yeah. Someone puts out a hit... And you and uh, you use part of it and you make money and they make money because people learn about it or they've already made their money. That's different than if you find this ancient culture and you say, hi, I'm going to rip off their uh, their clothing style to sell this boutique fashion brand. I'm going to make money and they're living in poverty. Huge difference in that sort of thing. But it is a I think the line there is very fuzzy. You can tell when it's clearly bad and when it's clearly okay. But in the middle, I think there's a lot of gray area. And it's interesting because right now there's been a lot of movement on this in courts. There's been a lot of lawsuits related to sort of the ideas of originality when it comes to music. And so the sort of famous one is 
the estate of Marvin Gaye versus Pharrell Williams and Robin Thicke with the song oh, yeah. Blurred Lines, which now in hindsight, if we look back at that song, is sort of problematic for a lot of other reasons. But the interesting thing there was part of the question was, is a vibe copyrightable? And is this a vibe or is this an actual like sampling and actual use? Mm. And in that case, um, the family of uh, Marvin Gaye won a $5 million plus judgment, which is kind of wild and kind of crazy. And the result of that has been a huge explosion in the use of musicologists, which are people who study the math of music and looking at is this something which is truly original, which is total mind, you know, just like wow. out there. I was in a clubhouse room with Jesse Carmichael, who's the Maroon 5 uh, keyboardist and one of the songwriters. And he was talking about they actually created a song and then they had like an anxious moment where like it kind of gives like a Bob Dylan vibe. So they brought in, they literally hired a musicologist to come in and decide and they decided that it was actually too close. So they went out and actually paid the wow. Dylan, um, you know, the, the Dylan public, the publishing company for Dylan. They actually paid to officially sample it, even though they hadn't intended to sample it. And so it's really crazy wow. what this, what's going on. There actually has been on the other side though, Katy Perry actually just on appeal, literally like a few weeks ago, got a judgment reversed where she had lost an initial lawsuit. But then a federal judge decided that, you know, she had eight notes that matched another song and eight notes arranged in a certain way isn't, you know, isn't actually, you know, infringing on originality. And so it's crazy because all of this then speaks to this thing we were talking about before of creativity is about the mixing of the familiar and the novel, the old and the new. And there is no truly original idea. So this idea that somehow in music you're supposed to come up with permutations that have no inspiration, no nothing to do with anything that's ever come before. I mean, it's just crazy. It's ludicrous. I, I think that actually is a recipe for stunting creativity if you're so anxious about it, right? I, uh, I think that hip hop is such a transformative thing because there were no worries about the sampling and about the remixing. And you know, in the early days, it was so collaborative anyway. Like the point was to take other people's stuff and do something else with it. People are doing that to you. Uh, you know, it gets different when lots of money is on the line. But so the other day, I actually learned a term from a, a friend, a mutual friend of ours near AL. He, uh, he wrote me an email because I'd written a blog post where I had referenced a, an anecdote from I Love Lucy. And he wrote me an email and he said, uh, I wrote about this in, uh, in my book, uh, you know, did you get it from me? And if so, could you give, give credit? Or is this just a case of cryptomnesia? Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, it was, he was really kind about it. We were friends. Uh, he wasn't being a jerk about it. But I realized that I probably had gotten this story from, you know, his book that I'd read three years before. Uh, and, uh, and, but the term cryptomnesia is, uh, I think is really cool. And I want to give, you know, near credit for uh, teaching me this term. But it's basically you've heard it somewhere, but you don't remember. And it's become mixed in with your current thinking so that when you talk about it or you do something with it, you uh, you don't know where it came from and you don't uh, you don't know to credit someone. Mm. Um, so this kind of like. A, and, and also, but it also goes there to like what deserves credit. Right. And this is part of right. the question sometimes with sampling is like if you use like one note from a from a song, we probably would say that's not a sample. It's probably, you know, but if we use right. two, all of a sudden it's a sample. And, and you know, 
we obviously Shane and I both have experience in startup land where a big part of what you're doing is you're doing customer discovery and you're talking to people and that's incorporating your product. But like you're not, you know, this is the norms in startup land or if a customer gives you feedback and you implement it, there's no IP ownership from that customer, which right. is sort of just a norm. It doesn't actually make sense vis-a-vis the discussion we all just had with music and what the sort of current norms and standards are with music. Yeah. So you have you ever seen on Twitter where someone tweets something like, don't let anyone tell you anything, but be yourself or whatever. And then some jerk is like, hey, I tweeted that six months ago. And it's like, uh, this is, first of all, an idea, a cliche that any of us could have come up with. But second of all, do you own that idea? Because you said it once. Correct. And the comedy has this issue. And this is a big thing. And and to that point, it's like, yeah, if, you, if someone heard it, Obviously, that's, you know, you could see why that's problematic, but the lines start to become very blurry because what's the difference between sort of inspiration and copying? And, you know, I really like, and maybe to bring this home, you know, thinking about today's episode and thinking about some of the things, the themes that, you know, I resonate with, I really like this idea of sort of, you know, as a key principle, don't betray the audience because fundamentally your job as a creative is creating something for an audience. I'm actually not a believer in this idea that we create for ourselves. I think creating for ourselves, and this is maybe a topic for another discussion, is like a very self-centered activity. I think we create for an audience. We create, otherwise we would just create something, never publish it or distribute it. We would just you know, keep it in a little locked room. And so inherently that trust with an audience, I think is fundamental and important. So I love this idea of using that as a guidepost for making these decisions. I think. So I disagree on the creating for others versus ourselves, but we can leave that for another. That, that'll be now we have a future topic. Yeah. But I think if you are creating for an audience, don't betray the audience. And I think if you are using someone else's work or something that they care about or something that they gave to the world, you are now taking it, remixing it, using it as a building block for something to give to the world. Give them credit, especially if you're making money off of it. Don't, I, I think the tug of war of who should get money for this. If you are the creative that's using someone else's building block, you should be the one that is, uh, is trying to do right, uh, you know, financially and credit wise to the other person. They shouldn't have to come after you. You know, I think it's a whole other thing. People that are coming after people for stuff that isn't legit is the two notes, you know, but, uh, but I think as creative people, we should do right by not just the audience, but our other fellow creatives whose shoulders we're standing on. I love that. And with that note, the question I have for all of you listening is, do you have a question for us on anything creativity related you'd like to hear on the show? If so, click the link to creativehotlineshow.com in the show notes from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions, so put us to work. In our next episode, we're going to be addressing a couple of controversial topics that we get a lot of questions about, and that's drugs like Adderall and caffeine and psychedelics, depression and mental health, and the relationship between these things and creativity. Oh, and if you like this episode, well, we could use your help. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to subscribe to automatically get each episode for free on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. In the meantime, remember, ask us your questions at creativehotlineshow.com. Bye, friends. Bye, Shane. Bye, Ellen. Bye. Bye.